Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the World Wide Web, as we used to call it. Yeah, that's the reason a lot of websites still start with www, which is short for World Wide Web, of course, but it takes three times as long to say. It does. It's almost like the people who invented the internet did a lot more typing than talking, so I guess they were ahead of their time there as well. Indeed. And today we're talking to new partner Andrew Lowe about how technology markets are developing and the ways that regulation can protect competition and innovation in an uncertain future. So you should be careful about approaching the digital economy with any sort of absolute sense about what is right or wrong. And the challenge I see for us is to really sit down and think very hard about what we have a problem with and how are we going to analyse that, how are we going to tackle that and, and what are the tools that we have for that. But first, Matt, tell us what's been happening around the grounds. Well, the big news in the competition and regulation community is that we have a new cryptic crossword available at www.crossword.com slash edge. So this is the crossword that two people completed last time? Look, two people submitted their crosswords. We don't know how many completed their crosswords, but decided to keep it to themselves for whatever reason. Yeah, true, true. I mean, they might not have realised that the first people to submit their crosswords can have their names included as answers in the next one, or even the names of their loved ones. Yeah, or pets. And of course, you can submit your solutions on the website or send to our new email, edge at gtlaw.com.au. And you can also send us a message at that address if you have a question or a comment or a piece of news you'd like us to share on the podcast. Please do. But let's look a bit further around the grounds. Well, our friends at Amlex have pointed us to the ACCC's incoming brief to the new Australian government, which sets out what the ACCC does, what its priorities are, and the ways that it reports to government and participates in law and policy development. This was in response to an FOI request, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It's, it's not clear who made that request. We could possibly make our own FOI request to find out who it was, but they probably refuse it or at least redact it. Well, they've redacted a fair bit of this brief, haven't they? It looks like they've redacted all the good stuff, really. There's an intriguing page where the ACCC welcomes the election proposal to raise the maximum penalty for competition law breaches from $10 million to $50 million. They also say that consumer law penalties should get the same bump. And I think those are about the only unredacted opinions in the whole brief. Then the rest of that section is all blacked out, and I kind of wish I knew what else they said about it. Maybe they mentioned the other ways that you could work out the maximum penalty, which can go much higher than $10 million or even $50 million. And I guess they're always going to take the higher maximum penalties, aren't they, if they're on offer? But the actual penalties are always a matter for the court. That's right, they are. And we saw that just the other day in the case against Uber. So they'd agreed with the ACCC that they'd pay $26 million for consumer law breaches. But Justice O'Brien said that sounded too high, not just a bit too high, but five or six times too high. And he's asked the parties to come back and explain just how they got to that number. So the argument is that big companies will only be deterred by big penalties. But the judge here said that the penalty still has to relate to the impact on consumers or the gain from the conduct, which he said here was unclear or even trivial. And there have been a couple of cases where the federal court has been concerned that agreed penalties might be too low, including one of Justice O'Brien's cases, actually. And then in the Dieselgate case, Justice Foster thought they were manifestly too low, and he raised them from $75 million to $125 million. Yeah, but you don't often hear about a court saying that an agreed penalty is too high. You don't. And here, the ACCC might be able to persuade Justice O'Brien that they've got it right, but it seems a long way off at the moment. Those redacted pages wouldn't be arguing for a minimum penalty as well as a higher maximum, would they? Look, I wouldn't think so, but we'll see what happens when the new government puts out some more detail around its election proposals. 
Indeed. Well, I see from social media that the Assistant Minister for Competition, Andrew Lee, was in the US and was looking very comfortable with FTC Chair Lena Khan, as well as Tim Wu, who's the President's Special Assistant on Competition Policy, and Senator Amy Klobuchar. Now, that sounds a bit like a hipster commune, doesn't it? It kind of is. And Assistant Minister Lee has been quite busy with some of his other portfolio responsibilities, especially charities, but now he's starting to raise the volume on competition issues. He's got an interview with The Guardian uh, where he says the government's committed to preventing excessive market concentration and increasing penalties, and also that it's open to considering those tweaks to the merger processes that have been proposed. And in that interview, he actually says that one of his favourite barbecue games is naming Australian industries where they are, and I quote, more than just a couple of dominant players, unquote. I mean, that sounds to me like we have to get ourselves invited to one of Andrew Lee's barbecues. Oh, absolutely. Well, maybe that was a coded invitation to this podcast. Let's consider this an RSVP. You can bring your crossword. Anyway, what else is up? There are a couple of interesting postscripts in the Country Care Criminal Cartel case, obviously one of the most alliterative competition law cases we've seen in a while. Which Senior Counsel Kate Morgan spoke to us about in Season 1. She did, and Country Care are now suing the law firm that drafted the clause at the centre of the case. That was a clause that said they wouldn't undermine their joint government tenders by advertising retail prices below the tender price. That's the one. And Country Care are saying they'd asked their lawyers if that clause could raise any issues, but it ended up in the agreement. And although Country Care was famously acquitted of all the charges, they say they spent $11 million on their defence, which they can't get back now because costs aren't awarded in criminal cases. Yeah, and you'd think that would be considered in the decision to bring criminal charges or not, right? At least when they're dealing with smaller businesses. Yeah, and especially when we're still really working out how to run these as criminal cases in front of juries. As ACCC Chair Jenica Scott-Leap has said a few times now. Yeah, and as the judge in the country care case has also just suggested. Yeah, that's right. So in a current cartel case, a civil one this time, Justice Bromwich kind of wondered aloud if he'd been wrong in the country care case to say that witness statements shouldn't refer to competition or competitors. Yeah, we know that people in business don't always use terms like competition, competitors, markets, in ways that lawyers or economists would, right? No, they don't. And those kinds of statements have been allowed before a judge, but Justice Bromwich had thought it might be confusing or even prejudicial for a jury. And we can't really know now whether that might have made a difference to the country care result, but it does goes to show that we're still in the early days of criminal cartel enforcement, even after more than a decade of these laws being on the books. And wasn't Justice Bromwich the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions before he was called to the bench? And oh, are you called to the bench or is it like you're called to the bar? Or called to the barbecue. Uh, yes, Director Bromwich was called to the bench just before the CDPP had laid its first criminal cartel charges, so he never got to run a cartel case, though he prosecuted plenty of other corporate crimes. And this case just shows, doesn't it, that as well as advising on whether something might be lawful, lawyers also advise sometimes on the legal risk of getting sued, even if it is lawful. And that's all about how the regulator or even a competitor or a customer might perceive what you're doing and then what they might do about it. Yeah, that's right. And it's going to be cold comfort if you proved right in the end, uh, if your client's lost all that time and money and they can't get it back. Yeah, who'd be a lawyer? And thanks again to our friends at MLEX for reporting on these issues. Yeah, they're often the only ones getting the lowdown from these hearings day to day. It's really helpful. And speaking of lowdowns, Matt, you've spoken to new partner Andrew Lowe on how we regulate for an uncertain future. That's right. Andrew had some great insights into the way we should think about these very rapidly changing technology markets and how we can hold to the benefits of all this innovation while still protecting competition and consumers. Let's take a listen. 
Today, I'm talking to Andrew Lowe, who is a partner in the Competition and Regulation Group and is one of our experts on the latest developments in technology. He knows what Web3 is, for example. Andrew, you delivered an address late last year on dynamic innovation and regulation. What can you tell us about that? The essential thesis of that address was, well, at a macro level, how do we grapple with the paradox between regulating dynamic digital markets while at the same time having that regulation encourage innovation in those very same markets? How do we make sure that the things that have led us to the significant social benefits that we have today through digital innovation aren't lost in the long term? So it feels like we've come pretty quickly from talking about how great technology is to talking about how dangerous it can be and how we have to regulate it. How did we get where we are today, particularly in Australia? The debate started out in quite a specific context for us. In 2017, we had the Digital Platforms Inquiry as part of a broader sort of concession in media law reform. Senator Nick Xenophon had asked for it. And you can see that during this inquiry, we start with a narrow focus, which is how does the flow of advertising money change in the supply chain and therefore affect the ability for us to produce quality journalism to something much broader, which is talking about the intersection between competition law, consumer law, and privacy. What are the dangers with aggregation of data? How are businesses being treated online? And and we start having concepts of unfairness and unfair practices or concealed data practices. We're shifting away from the period of examining what are the concerns or issues that people want to understand potentially arising from these shifts in markets and how we operate online to what do we do about it? Do we need ex-ante regulation? Is our existing regulation enough? One of the more popular views is that you know, enforcement action is insufficient. It's lengthy. They're complicated. And by the time you resolve them, these markets have moved on. And the other view is actually you go in and you look at the conduct that you're particularly concerned about. Why isn't it the case that our existing laws are enough? And are we just bolting on reform that doesn't make sense, doesn't interact well with other legislations? It's not well directed to the policy objective of one or the other. It's pretty wild that one bit of horse trading in the Senate by one senator who's now long gone has sparked this whole period (laughs) of inquiries that beget more inquiries. But I suppose similar things have happened all over the world, that the regulator starts looking at something and then it leads them onto other things and it's a whole can of worms. Even before the digital platforms inquiry, of course, you had Lena Khan's paper about whether the competition laws were sufficiently directed to achieving proper outcomes for making markets work for most people and whether the consumer welfare standard was the right standard. But even before that, people were looking at how was Amazon at that time disrupting retail markets. Europe had a couple of investigations there around algorithms. Overseas and globally, these things have had slow burns for a while and and then just hit a moment of critical mass where we figured out, actually, we need to look at things holistically. We need to take a step back and think, is our competition law sufficient? Is it driving the outcomes in this digital economy that we would expect? We start making connections around how multi-sided platforms operate and, and do we have attractable, clear theories that allow us to analyze the things that we think are problematic and analyze the things that we, we don't? So as all of these things emerge, and sometimes they might echo each other, what are the themes that you see coming together that we need to look at to understand what's going on and address it? I can see a few key themes emerging. In Europe, the legislature has come to the conclusion that the digital economy is characterized in large part by gatekeepers. Basically, the essential intermediary between one party and another, whether it's a social media platform being an essential means of accessing readers or audience attention, 
whether it's a retail platform being an essential partner for retailers to engage with consumers online, or whether it's even something like a search engine being the essential point at which consumers engage with the internet. And they start understanding or deciphering what are the key features of a gatekeeper or a platform which make it susceptible to regulation. So in the past, it only made sense to have maybe one port, you know, there's some natural monopolies. Now they start applying sort of similar view to the digital economy. And it becomes clear that there are economies of scale, economies of scope. You have complementarities between different sides of the platform that feed on each other and create an ecosystem. You have large amounts of data and a means to interpret that data and execute on that data. And so these features start creating this concept of gatekeeper. And, and well, okay, we, we don't have a problem with, with gatekeepers. Gatekeepers, as it turns out, create fantastic services. These entities play a very important role in our economy. And what are the standards that we want them to abide by? You know, you start seeing the themes of infrastructure regulation being interpreted in the digital economy. So theme number one, the theory is if we unlock those gatekeepers, we can have the value of the platform, but also make sure everybody kind of benefits from it. The other key theme which we're seeing in Japan and South Korea is a focus on transparency and fairness. There's just a lot that happens online that, you know, when businesses engage with the platform, they have no means to check. Is the product I'm buying actually the product I'm getting? In terms of digital services, right? If you're paying for, for AdWords and paying by impressions, who's telling you how many impressions you're getting? Well, as it turns out, it was the person who was selling you the AdWords, which in ordinary circumstance can create some information asymmetry there. And the other thing is fairness, basic forms of fairness about adequate notice before exercising unilateral rights, etc. Because of the differences in economic and service differences and local businesses interacting with large global businesses, they've started to think about minimum standards of fairness when dealing with people. The third theme is mergers and acquisitions. A lot of regulators are pointing to the significant amount of M&A activity that's happened in the digital space around large digital platforms and thinking to themselves, do we need to revisit the way we regulate mergers? A key theme that arises for me is how do we regulate in uncertain environments? How do we deal with maybe a small probability of significant competitive harm in the future in markets that are so dynamic that we can't really see what's going to happen in the future? Do we, in a world of uncertainty, opt towards saying no? And do we calibrate our rules so that we reduce the risk of us clearing transactions that should have been opposed? Or do we recalibrate to stay where they are, which is largely evidence-based and, and look, we accept that? I don't know what's going to go on in the future, but as always, and as our law has always done, we do the best with what we can today. And sometimes we're going to be right and sometimes we're going to be wrong. So it feels like the ACCC with the current proposals is leaning towards the former approach to reduce the standards of likelihood that, um, that you might need to establish. Is that a risk-averse approach or is that risky <laughs> in other ways? I, I think the debate is still very live with the ACCC. The things that we'll need to think about when we think about being too permissive or being too interventionist is how do we be more precise? How do we have clear framework for analyzing this that allows us to separate the good from the merger from the bad from the merger? How do we find that balance of allowing these things to occur because we've derived significant benefits from people bringing multiple parts of the digital economy together to offer us something more powerful? How do we not lose that? But at the same time, how do we really focus on the parts that we have a problem with and grapple with that in a more targeted way? 
technology, when you try and regulate it as either good or bad, becomes very difficult because it's actually about use and misuse. It's dangerous to deal with the absolutes. And I think there must be a place for us to think more creatively about commitments or remedies, right? Behavioral remedies. I know there's general aversion towards behavioral remedies, they're hard to monitor, et cetera. And a preference in merger laws or merger regimes or structural remedies. But you're talking about issues such as access and availability of data, privacy, et cetera, or fair dealings with third parties. You're really talking about behavioral remedies and the Google Fitbit undertaking or commitment given to the European Commission around separation of data between business units so they don't aggregate and ensuring that you continue to make data available to parties who before the merger and after the merger, but by the way, we're still going to have an ability to combine two companies to produce a better product for consumers. That seems to me to be quite ideal. Whereas if you're thinking only in a structural sense, if you had issues with those aspects, data aggregation or future nascent markets or ability for people to access that data, then you would just oppose the merger and you would never get any of these things. So you should be careful about approaching the digital economy with any sort of absolute sense about what is right or wrong. And the challenge I see for us is to really sit down and think very hard about what we have a problem with and how are we going to analyze that, how are we going to tackle that, and, and what are the tools that we have for that. So I think it's a very interesting time for us. You've spoken about a lot of competition issues. They might be structural, they might be behavioral. Of course, it's consumer protection issues as well. And in this area, we can't get away from privacy issues too. What happens when all of those things find themselves in tension or in, in conflict? We touched on this earlier about the plethora of issues in the digital space and how they traverse multiple policy objectives. The key ones include, yes, competition and market regulation, consumer law, privacy, but even at the extremes, human rights and the fundamental pillars of our democracy. Around the whole range of digital issues cutting across multiple policy domains comes a strong desire and a strong need to seek cohesiveness or, or sense across our various regulatory or legislative instruments. Right, We have to make sure they continue to make sense when we amend them to address these issues. And trying to figure out whether, in some cases, the policy objectives support each other or whether policy objectives are in debate with each other. One clear example is privacy. So protecting data on one hand versus the open data right, consumer data right, which is actually dissemination of data is key as, you know, the oil of our digital economy. So if we want benefits to it, we've got to make sure not one party has it. When we look at these issues that intersect multiple policy domains, approaching the issue with a specific lens, whether it's competition lens or privacy lens, and, and then executing on the regulation from that lens only might need care and attention. In a competition enforcement lens, we are concerned about specific investigation of conduct and then seeking penalties for that conduct for specific or general deterrence. Yes, we kind of regulate, but the core competency uh, from the competition lens is to, to examine, investigate, prosecute. And people are discussing that now, but is that really the healthiest way to establish norms of commercial interactions in dynamic markets? We really need to focus on that because if we simply let markets go, provide no guidance, and then seek huge penalties for where we think things have crossed the line without giving an opportunity for people to adjust or conform their, their behavior to standards that are acceptable, are we really achieving efficient regulation? 
So do you think something like a digital regulators forum where you've got the competition enforcement agency, privacy regulator, broadcast regulator getting together and at least liaising on these issues, is that going to get us there or do we need something broader? I think uh, forums like that are absolutely key because they create broad perspectives and interaction and coordination across multiple regulators directed to a particular thing like digital economy. I'm not sure it can get us all the way there because what I'm really talking about in terms of tensions between different policy objectives, etc., that I'm talking about making value judgments. They need us to seriously grapple with, with values. Do we want growth and innovation in, in the digital world? Do we want to participate in an unhindered and free way? Or are we willing to give up some of that to protect our bottom line in terms of privacy, human rights, fairness, etc.? Do we love convenience of consumer products? And are we willing to trade how much power you know our local businesses have and to engage with those products and deliver those prices? To consumers, there can be no argument that collaboration, coordination, and cohesive working together amongst different regulators is an essential part of being able to grapple with issues in, in the digital economy to produce sensible outcomes. Coordination amongst countries globally and interaction, collaboration, understanding that globally must also be an essential part of how we respond to and deal with the issues in the digital economy. But actually, what's important to Australians is not the same as what's important to other countries in the Asia-Pacific region like Japan and South Korea. That's different to the reforms in Europe. And reforms in Europe are different to the US. So we're all looking at all these issues and all these reforms ultimately reflect the outcomes of, of values. And I'm really looking forward to, to us getting to a point where we have a, an ability to consult, develop and distill what we as a country think is important for us in the digital economy. Before we go, can we bring this back to how we engage with these issues individually? Say I work in a business or I advise a business that's interacting somehow with all of these themes. What do I think about? The first one is, well, what's my business's plans or objectives in the digital economy? And what are the essential features that need me to execute on that? And are there any bottlenecks? Do I need to engage with or rely on any particular platform or delivery service and, and how much risk is associated with relying on that platform digital service to access my customers? Or do I even have access to those services? If you are a platform and you're a large digital platform, I think you would be following these issues very closely as they directly concern your business. And I think that's obvious. I don't need to say uh, much there. And then if you're a consumer and you're engaging online in digital economy, you might also be interested to know how is my data being treated online? How are things being presented to me? What are the costs associated with the services I use, which I don't see? There's a range of issues that are relevant to you depending on the nature of your business. And they're all worthwhile following to see how you might be impacted in the future. The key starting point would be to think about your touch points in the digital economy and who your essential trading partners are there and think through, well, what are risks and bottlenecks do I need to? Or if you're delivering the service, watching the space, watching the movement, how is that going to impact my business and my business model? Is anything I need to change to accommodate what people are expecting of me and how I conduct myself online. Andrew, you've given us a lot to think about. Thanks for laying all of that out in such a cohesive way. We didn't get to Web3, but maybe next time. Thank you very much, Matt. What a great interview. It does seem like we need very precise tools. I guess the question is whether we need new ones or just sharpen up and use the old ones. 
Yeah, that is the question. And, and even when Assistant Minister Lee said he was open to changes to the merger law, he wanted to make sure that we don't miss out on the opportunities for new startups. And that seems like a recognition that a lot of startups really bank on the chance to be acquired by a larger business, and they just might not bother if that wasn't an option. True. And with all this uncertainty, we're lucky you've got a crystal ball, Matt. What's that telling us? Well, the crystal ball has been heavily redacted, I'm afraid, but I can see that the annual ACCC AER regulatory conference is happening. There'll be a focus on energy regulation and environmental regulation, which we talked about a lot around here, as well as the regulation of digital platforms. There'll be some great speakers with a lot of ideas, and they may be quite influential in shaping the regulatory landscape in the next 12 months. And GNT, of course, hosts a cocktail evening the night before the conference, which I guess must be meant to test everyone's capacity for self-regulation. Yeah, I think that's the idea. We'll report back next time anyway. Remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes. And we've got some great guests coming up, including telecommunications veteran Richard Feasy. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review, try the new crossword, and tell your friends and your loved ones. And your pets. Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin. <laughs>